Hello and welcome to the podcast, How Did You End Up Here? This is Jamie here and I'm talking to people who have interesting jobs or vocations and finding out what path they took to get to where they are. This week I'm talking to retired professor and political blogger, John Robertson. John, thank you for coming along. My pleasure. And can you give us your job title and sort of current vocation? Well, I'm a retired professor of media politics at the University of the West of Scotland, retired about two years ago. I'm still currently quite quite active blogging and uh, and as I suppose a political activist for the, the SNP. I'm a, although I'm in the SNP, it's the independence movement is a more general thing for me, but that's that keeps me interested. And so tracking back to sort of how you how you end up there in, in that position um, at this day, uh, can we just track back? You were born uh, Duns in Berwickshire. I was yes, ten miles from the English border in 1951. So this is going to this could be quite a long story to get to where I am That's today because I'm now 66, <laughs> pushing 67. Yes, I was born in Duns in Berwickshire. And when you went to you went to you started off in school in Ber- Yes, but I went to primary school in Duns. But we, my father lost his job in a very bad winter. He was a he was a plasterer. And, uh, and my mother at that point persuaded him that we should move to the Falkirk area where her relatives lived. And so I grew up in, in Grangemouth mainly, in the Falkirk area, and grew up a, a loyal bairn. To, and that you're talking to, this, about the, to this day. To the football club, to, yes. talking to the Falkirk FC. Um, and your ambitions when you were at school, did you have sort of ambitions, did you think, you know, academia and that sort of thing? Was that what was you, when you were, you know, coming of age and, and sort of working at what you might want to do? No, no. What, I, what was your I, thoughts? I, I didn't. I didn't have... Um, I mean, that that it should become a professor would have been a shock to everybody. I come from a very working-class family where, I mean, no one apart from me. I, I have 15 cousins and uh, none has been to university apart from me. Um, I was good at drawing and from an early age and that seemed to be the, the, the thing that directed the way all the adults thought about me. And so if, if we leap forward a bit, I mean, all I did, all I did in school was really... I drew as much as I could, spent as much time in the art department as I could, and uh, and it seemed just like the logical thing would be that I went to, to art, art school. And so when I left Grangemouth High School in 1969 with a, a letter from the head teacher saying, quite a bright boy, but definitely not university material, so there's a wee bit of irony there, um, I went to, to Glasgow School of Art in 1969, but it didn't work out. Um, a, I discovered that I was good at drawing. I, I knew that already, but I discovered also that I didn't have any particularly creative ideas so I uh, so I crashed as, the, as we hippies used to say I bombed and uh, and I went to work in an architect's office as a kind of trainee draftsman and uh, did that for about four years and how did you that was obviously a real was that perhaps a, a change in terms of discipline going from art school where and perhaps it's a stereotypical image I have of art yes, school where it's yeah. so you know it's not easy I don't mean easy but it's like <laughs> it's maybe whereas if you, when you go into maybe an architect it seems it sounds to me like a professional thing everyone sat there with a a yes. shirt and tie on and stuff. Yes. Because you've come from art school where you uh, can express yourself, sort of thing. Did, was that a big change in it, sort of absolutely mentality? It was, it, it was a culture shock. It was. Um, I'd had summer jobs before, but that was the first job I had where you had to be there at nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so Did you have that, to be at art school at nine o'clock? In the morning? No, no, that was a bit more. <laughs> art schools in the nineteen sixties had virtually no fixed curriculum. You did. They, they, I think in some ways they were they were quite good, but um, no, the, the architect's office was was quite funny in a sense. I mean, I was at the bottom of the the, the ladder, and uh, you know, was doing things like making cups of tea as well as as drawing. I did very kind of basic drawings of little bits of buildings, but um, the, the funny thing about it in a lot of ways was that um, because I was in the architect's office, I had to dress differently 
so I had to wear a suit and a shirt and tie. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, because it was the late 60s, they seemed to think it unreasonable to ask me to cut my hair. So I and the, all the other young lads in the office, we all had long hair down to our shoulders, but a suit and tie. Yeah. It was a, a very surreal image. Oh, and and uh, that, that lasted for four years. Okay. The long hair, was that inspired by anyone in particular, or just the, the well, general no, vibe of the hour? Eric Clapton was my, my my main man in those days, and I. some people said I looked a bit like him. All right, yeah. that's not bad. Well, I don't know. I think I look better than he does now. You think? So? Has he maybe had a harder party? And has he maybe partied a bit harder than you? Not not to dis- not to say you're not capable of having a party, but uh, I think he uh, may have taken many more drugs. Right. Okay. Than, than I did. <laughs> <laughs> and although I went to university in the seventies, I spent most of my time drinking beer. Okay. Disappointingly. Fair, fair enough. No, no. Good stuff. And and so from architecture, um, you did it for four years. Did you say was that? The, the, the seven apprenticeship that was that was four years out of a seven year part time training course okay. and uh, I didn't like it at all I no. didn't really enjoy it and uh, and at the age of 25 you know, I, I went to Stirling University on an access course one of the very first access courses because my hires weren't very good I had okay. some hires but they weren't very good apart from the art mm-hmm. hire but in 1975 Stirling University had an access course where mature students with med- modest modest hires you had to have something sure um, could get into social sciences, only okay. social sciences. I went there with this notion that I, I, I was interested in psychology and I would like to be a clinical psychologist. And that was after reading books by um, a Glasgow psychologist called, or psychiatrist called R.D. Lang. Mm-hmm. And uh, R.D. Lang was a, was a very influential figure in, at the time. He was a, he was a counterculture psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I went with the idea of getting involved in, in that. But, uh, but at the time... At the time in the university, I gradually drifted away from psychology towards um, sociology, and I ended up as a as a primary teacher for a while. Yeah. So yeah. dealing with very very young youngsters, or no? I I, I um well four and a half days out of the week, I, I taught primary seven because mm-hmm. being the only man in the school, you were always put in primary seven, right? And you had to look after the football team, which of course I, I was happy with. Yeah. But at the the primary one teacher and I had gone through college, so on a Friday afternoon we used to swap. And I, I would I would wind up her primary one so badly that the parents would have mental breakdowns at the weekend. I think <laughs> that was that was the deal we did was that she had suffered the primary one class right. all, all week. Okay. And so I do drama and movement with them and so on. I get mm-hmm. them absolutely hyper. So they would go out of the school with sparks coming out of their ears. Right, right. And uh, that was quite a short period, really, two years. And then I was um, then I, then I came to work in higher education. Mm-hmm. And the football team, can you can you tell me about that? What was uh, we've obviously I've, you know. I should put you know point out we are pals and we've watched football many times. But did you have a particular football philosophy to use <laughs> uh, a trendy phrase in 2018? Yeah. I had wondered whether Jimmy would want me to, to talk about this because <laughs> in some ways I'm ashamed of it. I'm proud and ashamed right. of it. Um, I, I taught in a very small primary school and we had a very unsuccessful team mm-hmm. in Stirling and we used to be uh, hammered weekly by the bigger schools in the area. But so I decided to adopt the Italian defensive system called the Catenaccio. <laughs> And I had I had eleven players. I had about four or five good players who I put in the spine of the team. Mm-hmm. I put my very best player at the Got back a as a sweeper, spine, yep. much to his process. Mm-hmm. And, and the other players who were mainly good at chess, I told them to kick the ball forward, out, or get in the way, but never kick the ball in or, or backwards. And we started to get results. And uh, so that, that there was a period in which they, they, it was good for their esteem and it was good for the school's kind of feeling of the morale in the school. But looking back on it, it was quite a cynical thing to do to introduce a defensive system to 11, 12-year-olds. But they were, it results was successful. Count. It's results, results that matter. Yeah. And do you, it's funny because you think to yourself, oh, did you think, in two minds, you think, well, maybe I'm sucking the joy out of this for the youngsters 
Oh, but at the same time, if they're going there and they're winning, is it? Did that maybe? That, that, they must have felt good about that. The the winning overwhelmed all of my reservations. Yeah, all of my philosophical reservations, my view of education, mm-hmm. all went out of the window. Right. It's only in retrospect that I've felt maybe a little guilty about it. <laughs> <laughs> in in terms of transferring from primary school to higher education, yes, is that is that a you know is that a big leap in terms of you know uh, as a, as a, as a staff member to yes. to, to to go from obviously no. No child could go from primary school to higher education yes. one go, but yeah. is it how, how much it, different is it? How different it, is it? it is very different. It's much easier higher education, um, primary teaching, and I, I guess probably nursery teaching would be even harder because uh, children complete tasks in such a short time. Mm-hmm. So working with other adults, some primary teachers make the transfer quite difficult because they have become used to talking down. Yeah, but I had a short time in primary schools, and it's not in my nature anyway to talk down to people. So when I became a lecturer, I found I, I, a reasonably good relationship with students because I, I didn't talk down to them. Yeah. Um, the, the, the reason I came into higher education was because I had, uh, and I think it would have been, um, it must have been about 1981 because over the Christmas period I bought a ZX81 computer. Okay. One key of memory. And I, I learned some basic programming on it. And in the following term, I took it into school and taught some of the kids in my primary seven how to do that. The local advisor had got wind of it, and I became like a kind of minor celebrity in the in Stirling County because the only primary teacher we knew how to plug a computer in. Okay. And uh, and then I was, dare I say, I was almost headhunted by Craigie College. Hey. In in here, Craigie College was to become part of uh, the University of the West of Scotland. Mm-hmm. It's now the, the Faculty of Education here, and they were desperate for a primary teacher who could use a computer, in some way, because they wanted to do lots of in service for the te- teachers in the area. Sure. So that's largely why I came down here in 1984 was to do that kind of work. But over the the many years from 1984 until 2015, I think, mm-hmm. um, when I retired, um, I had seven different jobs and mm-hmm. computing became a thing of the past and I drifted into other areas, in, in, in media in particular. In Craigie College, um, that was a college to train people to become teachers, Enti- primary teachers. Entirely, it was, yeah. it was entirely primary teachers. It was a tiny place. Yeah. And, uh, but in 1994, it merged with uh, with Paisley mm-hmm. College and became the University, the University. of Paisley. Mm-hmm. And then sensibly they changed the name later on. To University of West Coast. Yes. And the, obviously then from you moving and you know, having just been teaching primary sevens, I, I imagine the students that at that time must have appreciated your experiences and stuff, the fact you'd just come from there, yeah. it made you a very credible it did. Uh, teacher. It, it, it did, and that's, that's something that doesn't last forever, of course. It's a, a perennial problem in, mm-hmm. in teacher education that people come in because of their recent experience. Yeah. They, they use that term in interviews, uh, you know, selection panels, recent and relevant experience. Yeah. And I had that when I came. Yeah. But gradually as time went on, of I started course. to lose it. Yeah. And I became more the academic than the practitioner. Sure. But but initially yes it was yeah. it was quite helpful because I had seen children do the things I talked about yeah and so there was no and there's there's almost no way around that is there really especially in something like you know primary teaching um, yeah. I mean it's easier for us you know working in universities of technician it's easy for me to go at the weekend uh, do some camera operating or all that sort of thing yes. but if you're a primary teacher that's you know that's yes. not you can't just rock up on a Saturday and no. and, and teach some part. You can't really do it part. It's not something you can do part time. So it's, it's that it's, was a diff- yes. did that and did that sort of as you went on. Did it make it harder for you to In, initially? No, because uh, but it did later. I mean, initially no, because um, much of the work in the first few years was actually in service work mm-hmm. with teachers in local schools. Yeah. Sure. 
So I was able to keep myself fresh in that sense yeah. with regard to practice. You're still out in the, because I was in the so, arena. I mean, maybe for about five years, I was I was out and about in local schools, Dumfries yeah. and Galloway and Ayrshire. Travelled all over the place, and I can remember, I can remember, you know, having come from a, you know, a, a lovely but noisy primary seven one week, and then the following week, I'm driving about back roads in Ayrshire to visit small primary schools, sure. treated like a like a hero when yeah. I arrive because they can't plug their computer in. <laughs> um, I thought, you know, I really thought I'd landed lucky. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, so I was able to keep my kind of um, practice kind of ability up up to date mm-hmm. for the first five, six, seven years. But there yeah. does become a point you become more the academic and less the practitioner. Sure, sure. And that becomes problematic if you're going to continue to try and train teachers if you haven't done it recently. Sure. Yeah. And so from there, once the so after that sort of six seven years initial, what yeah. what happened? What happened next for you? Well, I I ended up being promoted, and uh, there's a common thing in uh, it happens probably in other professions, but but in teaching, it's very common for you to be promoted to become a manager because you were a good teacher, mm-hmm. um, and they don't train you to be a manager. Sure. Um, and and teaching and management are wholly different uh, tasks. So after about five or six years, I I got promoted. Um, I mean, I, I tried to be promoted because I had a, a growing family at the time and a big mortgage. Um, and so I, w- I was in management for a period. And I found that mostly unpleasant, I have to say. Did that for about six or seven years. And then, really quite luckily, they, they, they shut my department down in a restructuring. So I had to move, in a sense. And mm-hmm. I I moved out of the management line in higher education, which is one of two forks in the road, yeah. and got into the research side. Okay, and uh, and that research side was to lead eventually to me becoming especially interested in in, uh, in in young people's use of media, and that led eventually to my transfer from the school of education to the school of media mm-hmm. in two thousand and four. Was it a is it a big crossover there in in terms of what you were so you were researching as part of the school of education? Yes, and so what what can I can you give me an idea of the sort of things that you might research in that yeah. on that front? Well, the the thing that interested everybody in those days was well there were several things I tell a lie the thing the, the, one of the things that interested people dramatically I think in those days was was children's consumption of of, of video games computer games and so mm-hmm. on damaging yeah you know did did playing violent computer games make you violent so it was a strong draw to do research of that kind the the other area was uh, in the use of educational software. You know, could educational software enable children to learn things mm-hmm. they hadn't been able to learn before, to do things they hadn't been able to do before? I tended to go into the latter because I've always been a very, very sceptical about um, media influence. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've never believed that watching violent films makes people violent. I think people with a predisposition to be violent yeah. may get an idea from a film mm-hmm. about how to do it, but I don't think films make people violent. So I, I went down the other strand, which was this, which some people talked about as uh, emancipation, mm-hmm. that that children using computers would, would were able to work at a level you wouldn't expect, mm-hmm. and so I concentrated on something called the logo programming language, which was a kind of geometrical programming language, word processing, and databases, mm-hmm. and gradually over time developed with working in schools, developed ways of of demonstrating to other teachers that children could do things with these with software that they couldn't do pencil and paper. Mm-hmm. That, that, in, that in word processing, for example, they were to write at a much higher level because of the ability you have with the word processor, you know, to, with no mess yeah. to change and to restructure and so on. And with databases, I was able to demonstrate that children could handle lots of information, ask a question of it mm-hmm. and find something. Yeah. Quite remarkable. That would have taken weeks with encyclopedias. Yeah. And, uh, and with the logo programming language, which was largely about uh, geometrical ideas, 
we were not just me, we were able to demonstrate that young children could actually understand geometric concepts that are taught in secondary school, could understand them in primary school because they were able to actually engage with them. They didn't just learn them passively, they were actually controlling the computer to draw shapes and because it became it became then a, a concrete activity rather than a theoretical one. Mm-hmm. And that, that was at the heart of my what really interested me in education at that time. And until I, tr- I transferred to the School of Media, that was the, the real thrust of my teaching and my in-service teaching of other teachers mm-hmm. and so on. Because we see, you know, I was, in, I was involved with a school a few years ago to make a film to help students develop yes. good habits for exams, which... As my, you know, my mother thinking back to my own exams would find slightly ironic, but, um, but we, you, we, we, I saw in the, I did see in classrooms that uh, teachers were referring to things like YouTube because there was a lot of, it was obviously there's obviously a lot of rubbish on YouTube, but there's a lot of interesting, you know, especially for example historical um, videos which people can very quickly can can make use of. I mean, do you have a do you have thoughts on? You know where technology has gone with that. When you know, with iPads, I mean, I've got a six-year-old niece, and, and one of her, you know, it's almost natural for her just to navigate an iPad and use yeah. that kind of, uh, yeah. you know, just using her, her hand to just. When she was two, two and a half, she could yes. comfortably find the BBC iPlayer and to, and find Peppa Pig for herself without any help from from an adult. Do, do you have a thought on where that's heading and that sort of thing? Well, I mean. Uh, I'd have to be honest and say that you know that you know only a fool predicts the future, really with some confidence. But I suspect that the the experience we've had in the, in the, the early days of children with technology is that children can see the wood for the trees, mm-hmm. and that children don't have to unlearn things the way that adults do. Mm-hmm. So um, going way back to, for example, to the first um, uh, mouse-driven computers, the, the early Macintoshes. Um, one of the things that teachers looked at that at first, they looked at the mouse and they saw the mouse was moving in the horizontal plane, forward, backwards, left and right. But the thing that it was referring to on the screen wasn't moving forward, backward, left and right. It was moving up and down, mm-hmm. left and right. Yeah. And and teachers said, oh, that'll cause trouble. You know, they'll not understand that. But we discovered very quickly that three-year-olds come very quickly and will, are prepared to articulate to you mm-hmm. that if you do this, you get this on the screen, they'll say, and so on. And so I think a lot of the... Um, a lot of the abilities, the abilities of children with technology were initially a surprise. Mm-hmm. I think we're maybe past that now. We're maybe in a position now where every new every new technological development, we'll probably start to think they'll get it anyway. Yeah. Because they because they don't have to unlearn anything. Sure. They come to it fresh and they're highly motivated, of course, of course as well, which is a big factor. Yeah. Now, back, so back to yourself, you moved across to the School of Media. Yeah. Um, as a researcher and lecturer as well? Well, initially I had very little lecturing and I was kind of a bit kind of anxious about that at first until I found, you know, colleagues in the new school that were doing... Because my, my original background was in sociology, I discovered that a lot of, a lot of media criticism mm-hmm. has its origins in the social sciences. So I did eventually start to teach on other people's modules. But I was, I was brought across to, to um, help with the professor mm-hmm. uh, of research in the area and to kind of be the, the second um, research specialist in the school. He was to leave quite soon move on to a, a, an even better post. And so quite quickly, I was responsible for research leadership, mm-hmm. for um, managing the, the, the kind of research activity in the school, and for encouraging people, and also for writing the research assessment exercise, mm-hmm. um, which is quite a shock for me. Um, so, but but I, 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 I did both. I mean, it would, I would have been unhappy to be just a researcher. Mm-hmm. And uh, and as, as, as you know, I mean, I, I taught on 
a couple of modules, which eventually were my own modules, and I took great pleasure in them mm-hmm. um, because it, it enabled me to um, enabled me to engage with, with with people in a way that you know research doesn't always research can be quite lonely, mm-hmm. and uh, you, teachers benefit from from interaction. It's good for your soul. Well, I, I mean, on a personal level, I do, I do find that uh, you know coming into contact with you know motivated students yeah. with ideas for themselves yeah. is, is, has been very good for me. So. Yeah. Um, and obviously, the first time I came across yourself was in a, a class, Global Cultural Industries, mm. which obviously was, you know, the the, the the first assignment you set for us was to how to, uh, does globalisation exist? Yes. And th- was that something you were always interested in? Did you, and, and how far back did you sort of think to yourself, uh, well, here here comes yeah. this, I don't know, this phenomena that's, uh, uh-huh. you know, if... And, because one of the examples I used to prove that it did, or, or to suggest that it did, was, you know, that I, uh, you know, went to an American food chain, and then I went to the cinema to see an American blockbuster film. Yeah. Uh, I mean, did, did you did you look back and say, oh, this is this is what's on the horizon, or? I I, I wouldn't I wouldn't claim to have maybe uh, predicted globalisation. I mean, and and you, you might remember that there are those who argue that there have been earlier periods of globalisation, mm-hmm. the, the times of the great empires. Um, the time, the times in which the, the the Christian Church dominated Europe, there was a kind of globalisation along, you know, from from the printing press and mm-hmm. so on. But the kind of globalisation we talk about, um, I, throughout my time in, in teacher education, I had maintained an interest in politics, uh, and uh, through my interest in politics, I think, and reading about politics, I started became become, become aware of the idea of globalisation as far back as maybe it's the nineteen seventies and eighties. Mm-hmm. People were starting to talk about it, but I didn't really. I don't suppose I, I was really interested in it until I t- transferred to the School of Media, and it became clear to me that one of the areas in which globalisation is most clear mm-hmm. is, is, in, is in culture, sure. cultural globalisation, and that that was something that fit in well uh, with the, the teaching and, and the research here. So um, I think it was something that came upon me slowly, mm-hmm. probably quite early, you know, 70s and 80s, starting to think about it. People were becoming aware of globalisation. Often with regard to the negative aspects of yeah. the, you know the the, the the corporations dominating the world and so on. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's something I don't I, I kind of take for granted now. I suppose. Yeah. You know, I think we all we, we kind of take for granted now that the corporations are more powerful than many nation states. Mm-hmm. That remains the case, despite the efforts of you know people like Donald Trump claiming that he will he will you know pull them in and sort them out and so on. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think we've got some way to go to counter any kind of globalization. You could argue that it's one or two. Um, Phenomena are reactions to globalisation. I mean, clearly, terrorism is a mm-hmm. is is a is localism. Terrorism is terrorism is a, a reaction against the the brutality of of, of globalisation and it's the damage it's done to some communities, enriching mm-hmm. some and impoverishing others. Sure. Yeah. And in addition to that, uh, you've also you would as well as what you would uh, speak to yourself, speak to yourself, you know, as a broadcast production student. Uh, you taught journalism students as I well. Did. I did. Um, can you just can you remind me what that what what you were lecturing in? Was it the same thing? Global cultural industries. I'll have to be entirely honest and say I was able to use the same material sometimes with journalism students yeah, as yeah. I was with other media students. Uh, Globalisation was at the heart of it, and mm-hmm. the, the the politics of the media yeah. at the heart of it. The fact that they, you know that, that behind the media there are vested interests. Mm-hmm. So I, I taught about that with with journalism students. Um, I, they, they were, they were. I think they were particularly interested in this particular notion, in this notion of you know who owns, mm-hmm. you know, in whose interest. Yeah. Is them. Now, I think older journalists sometimes have to just accept 
that they're employed by somebody mm-hmm. whose interests are rather selfish, something like, you know, if they're employed by somebody like Rupert Murdoch. And if they want to keep their jobs, they probably have to keep quiet about that and just sip it. But, but young undergraduates are a bit more uh, idealistic. And I found them quite sympathetic to a critical view mm-hmm. of, uh, of the globalisation of the media, sure. the domination of a small number of powerful people, mm-hmm. of huge swathes of, of media mm-hmm. activity. But it was also, of course, the, as I was teaching the journalism students, it was also the time that the internet was really starting to blossom and social media was starting mm-hmm. to blossom. And the whole idea of citizen journalism was, was of great interest to them and to me. Yeah. And, uh, and what we've seen recently on the news, a lot of very, very negative reactions uh, to, um, to social media, mm-hmm. the way that social media can be used, of course, to bully people and to you know, and go beyond bullying perhaps. Um, I still remain very interested in the, the kind of the, the positive side of social media. The social media connects people yeah. social, who otherwise wouldn't be connected. People who are in minorities can be connected across the globe and so on. Mm-hmm. It, allows, it allows far more democratic expression of ideas. And, uh, and much of the criticism, I think, by mainstream journalists mm-hmm. um, of, of social media is, is fear-driven, I think. And it's understandable. They, they, they see the, you know, the, the print numbers falling fast and they see that some websites have more readers than they have. Um, as an older person, you might, you might think I might share their anxiety, but I've never been a professional journalist. Um, and that was one of, the, one of the issues, of course, was teaching journalism students. I had, and, but I had to be very careful to make mm-hmm. it clear that I wasn't teaching them as a, as a journalist. I was yeah. teaching them as an academic who, who was criticising yeah. journalism. But you're perhaps exposing them to new ideas that they, per- they hadn't perhaps thought about before. And, uh, I hope so. And hopefully... Gave him a, a more rounded view of things, or, or, or at least, as you say, another viewpoint. Yes, it was my intention certainly to do that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think there is always a danger in 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 the professional or vocational parts of higher education, mm-hmm. social work, teacher teacher training, nurse training, journalism areas like that. There's a there's a tendency, there's a dangerous tendency mm-hmm. for them to become cloning um, departments where the, the lecturers try to make students become like they were, and so you don't get change. And I think it's so. I think there's a place in all of these professional skill-based areas for people who are just academics, just like we don't have the we don't have the practical experience, but who are open to new ideas. Mm-hmm. There is a, gra- a grave danger if you know that. I mean, I did I did once have an exchange with a colleague we shall be uh, not named, who I said I said I said to him or her I said it sounds like you want to clone the students to be just like you. And he or she said, I don't see what's wrong with that. <laughs> Jamie can probably guess who it was, but I'm not going to say. <laughs> okay. um, so, and towards, uh, well, the, and over the last few years, obviously, as you said, you've, um, you have you were still publishing papers and, yes, and been yeah. publishing academic journals yeah. um, and doing a lot of research. And some of that research um, was uh, in the coverage of, and you obviously had an interest in this, in the 2014 independence referendum in Scotland. Uh, and you obviously, you you got a lot of, your research got a lot of attention. Uh, you researched, yeah. was it the, uh, well, BBC Scotland, I don't know if it was BBC Scotland specifically, if you can remember, was it STV as well? Or, it was both, you, both, both at the time, yes. I mean, I should say that I hadn't actually been especially interested in Scottish politics mm-hmm. until until 2014. Mm-hmm. I'd always been interested, but not especially. My my research, my published research, was commonly about the politics of um, American foreign policy and and the Arab world mm-hmm. and the Islamic world, and I was mostly concerned to to show as as the great Noam Chomsky uh, did before me. So you might argue I was following just in his footsteps there, to to demonstrate the tremendous bias 
in the Western media, in particular towards the, the Islamic world, to other parts of the world as well. Mm-hmm. Something that's been described as you know, Orientalism by, by some academics. And so I hadn't written anything about Scottish politics in the media until 2014. Mm-hmm. So I'd been researching for, you know, 20 odd years before that. And everything I'd published had been about the, the driving issues would have been ethnicity or class rather than the business of Scot- Scottish nationalism. And just I'd come to the end of a, of, a, of a piece of research which had actually been about trade unions. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, I, and I was thinking, what will I research next? And I saw that the, the referendum was coming up and I saw one. And I, and I read some journalistic pieces about bias. And I thought, well, I'll just do something. I'll do something quantitative here. I'll just, I'll just watch the programmes and count how often there are negative comments made about the, the Yes movement, how often there are positive comments made about the Yes movement. And the same for the No movement. And I would... I would, I would uh, count how often certain kinds of representatives were there and how long they got. I would I would look at the interviewing techniques. Were they hostile to one party and less hostile to another, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And so I, I produced something which I called Fairness in the First Year, which was about the first year of the campaign uh, for the referend- before the referendum. And in it, and I, I, hand on heart, hand on heart, I did, not, I did not try to get what I wanted out of the research. I found a simple quantitative dominance of anti-independence sentiment mm-hmm. in, in especially BBC coverage, but also STV at that time as well. And, uh, and I, I sent it to uh, an academic journal and they said, we'll publish it, but once after the referendum. And I don't know, it was a, it was a kind of road to Damascus moment for, for me there, where that, I would normally have said, well, it's fine, because I, I was used to waiting months, sometimes a year for my research to be published mm-hmm. in journals because I had to go through the peer review process. But then I thought, isn't this really interesting? Don't shouldn't people know about it? Mm-hmm. And after after I the, this journal, um, an Edinburgh University journal, said they were interested, but they would wait till after the referendum. I, I said no thanks, and I sent it to a to a website called Newsnet Scotland, and they published it. Now they they were typically receiving about one or two thousand hits a day. When they, when it was published, they they got ten thousand every day, mm-hmm. and it's and it, it it spiraled out of control until a quarter of a million people had read it within about a month. The BBC got wind of it and the BBC complained about it. They said I was biased and they reported, they wrote to me, but they copied in the principal of the university. And uh, the the implication was that they wanted to make the principal of the university aware that I had done Mm -hmm. something that had offended the BBC. Now, I I read that as a a kind of indirect attempt to have me sanctioned or, or maybe even sacked, who can say, and I was quite anxious for a while. The university, in the end, were backed me my academic independence. They, they wouldn't back it as university research, because I hadn't been told by the university to do it. Um, so I was quite anxious for a while, and um, and and for the first time in my life, of course, thousands of people were reading my research. I mean, typically the research I wrote in the past, before that, I would get you know I'd get a postcard from Cuba or maybe one from Bulgaria or somewhere like that, saying that we we liked your research, and so it was, we were talking handfuls. Mm-hmm. And I think academic research is read by very small numbers of people. Yeah. Other other academics and PhD students. Suddenly, I had a mass audience here, and uh, and once the the BBC complained about it, um, uh, an SNP MP got in touch with me, and he then uh, he then persuaded the the Education and Culture Committee, in uh, I think March, two thousand and fourteen to invite me along to defend my research. And they also invited the, the top staff at BBC Scotland. It's, it's, I mean, I was glad to go. And that made me sort of, you know, f- more than 15 minutes, more than f- famous for more than 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. I think we can, we can say now that I was made famous maybe for a year or so. Um, 
And so I, I presented my, my research and I, I backed it up and I was asked questions by the committee. And then four people from the BBC came in afterwards. I should say I, I had travelled second class in British, in British Rail. They had tra travelled first class. I saw them. Um, and they were then quizzed. They, they had actually not intended to turn up but uh, because they're not obliged to. Um, BBC Scotland is not responsible to the Scottish Government for anything. Um, but BBC headquarters down in London then had told them it would be bad form, mm -hmm. as you might say, and that they should turn up. And they turned up and they basically suggested, suggested my research was flawed. They said my methodology was flawed and so on. It was interesting because it was a methodology that, that I had used for 20 odd years and uh, which had been peer reviewed mm -hmm. by people in, in journals. But for the BBC, um, including a, a gentleman who I, I checked his CV, had no evidence of research himself. Uh, he had said my methodology was flawed. And there was a bit of back and forward there. And uh, But I, I became sort of notorious, I suppose you might say, for a while because and, of that. And you're obviously, there was a, around the time, there were a number of large protests around yes. Pacific Key. You spoke at least once. I did. I more than once. More than yeah. once. Yeah. And how did how did you feel about that? Oh, because <clears throat> I have to say, as one of your previous students, I would never have said that I would have been aware of your politics. No. I, you know, you didn't in the class. You know, you certainly didn't say anything in the class at the time, and I'm and I'm quite sure you weren't. You know, around 2014, you weren't saying right before we talk about today's no. lecture. No. Uh, can I ask you all the vote? Yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm quite sure you wouldn't have done yeah. it. You wouldn't. So, but how, how did you, um, you know, because, uh, you know, obviously you, you know, we've, we spoke at length at the time about what, what you know, what you wanted and, and, and what, you know, what I thought about things. I wasn't, not even uh, half as well versed in, in the arguments that, as you were, but but we spoke at the time. But um, how, how did you feel? How did that feel being involved? Obviously, it was you know, you, you've obviously, you're an academic and you have the career to back it up and yeah. uh, um, you were ultimately made a, a professor as well. Yeah. So, um, and, and you were obviously speaking at something that you were obviously passionate about and, and yes. did mean mean something to you. How, yeah. how was that time for you? It, it was hugely dramatic that, that that should happen to me at the age of uh, 62, 63, mm -hmm. after a quiet time in academia. You know, when I'd, I'd had, you know, I'd had rewards and I'd, I'd had people compliment my work at times but it was always a small scale mm -hmm. sort of thing and uh, it, it also meant that that it led to shift I mean you mentioned that I didn't reveal my politics I, I was not a member of any political party as a as a, an academic I personally don't think it's appropriate mm -hmm. for academics to be in any political party many are um, I joined the SNP after I retired um, my sympathies clearly had been with the independence movement before but I was not a member and also I had never done any um, I had never really done any sort of high-profile activist work of that kind. Mm -hmm. I'd been on protests and so on in the past, but these were these were not to do with the Scottish independence. These would be to do with uh, you know, civil rights and so on. Um, it became clear that I think the BBC, in a sense, the BBC, in a sense, made me um, more political and 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 persuaded me to drop to come out of the ivory tower and engage. In, in a political event, and the the referendum, to my mind, was you know the most dramatic political event in Scottish history, really. Well, I think maybe in all of Scottish history since the Union of the, the Nations, and uh, and I stopped being just there is I stopped just being an academic. I'll admit to this. I, I became an academic and um, and uh, you know, an activist and on one side, mm -hmm. and I started to support the Yes campaign. I campaigned campaigned for the Yes campaign. I spoke at protests. 
I was then invited on television by, usually by you know by by Russia Today and China Central and so on. I was never invited on BBC or or STV. I would have refused BBC, of course, mm. uh, because I was offended by their attempt to, I think, to get me sacked. Um, and I think I, I I did something, and I knew retirement was coming anyway. Mm-hmm. I might have been if I'd only been forty, I might be more hesitant about doing this because I do think that academics shouldn't be mm-hmm. um, in a position of of you know influencing their students too much. But I did become an activist in that period, and I spoke at hundreds of meetings and so on. I didn't. I tried to. I did try to restrict myself as much as possible, not to talking about whether or not I believe Scotland should be independent or could be, or about the economy and so on, because these were not my areas of expertise. But I felt entitled to talk about bias in the media coverage. Now, in, in so doing, I was supporting the S campaign, but I was honestly reporting on my research. Mm-hmm. My research, I felt, had objectively found bias. I don't think many people today would be surprised now. I mean, the idea that the British Broadcasting Corporation should be unbiased is just, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, really. I mean, you, could, could you imagine, you know, Crimean television not being biased? I mean, it's, there's this notion that the British are some way different. So, um, so it was it was a big change for me, and and I stopped being the the pure academic at that point. You might argue that you know that I, you know I sold something there, and uh, but I, I knew retirement was coming, mm-hmm. and uh, and that when re- with retirement I would give myself over entirely to the to the the yes campaign. Um, so it it was a it was a moral dilemma, I yeah. suppose, and it's one in which I decided that the the better act was 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 to go for what I believed in. And I truly believe in Scottish independence. And uh, just very briefly, maybe I could just say why, because um, because a lot of people misunderstand uh, misunderstand my my drive for Scottish independence. It's not about being richer. It's not about any kind of hostility towards the English people by any means. You know, I'm a huge fan of you know of the Cure and the Smiths and all of this sort of stuff. Much of my childhood was listening to English bands. I have read English writers and so on. It's nothing to do with Englishness. It's to do with the British imperial state. That what made me most angry, as I became educated myself after leaving school, was 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 the, the horrors of the British Empire, the things that Britain has done in other parts of the world, which are gradually becoming apparent and gradually being revealed. I started to read about those, and my drive, my drive, my overpowering drive, is to have Scotland be a small, independent country that doesn't bomb other countries. That's what it's all about. I, you know, if we're a little worse off, a little better off, I don't really give a toss about that. Mm. I shouldn't have said give a toss. That's not really squaring, is it? Ah, no, not quite. So. No, so. I didn't use I didn't use the F word. Fair enough. <laughs> um, okay, so um, yeah, so I just thought I'd interject that. No, no, well, it's because it, it's obviously informs where you are now, and it does lead ultimately to you know how did you end up here? So you're obviously um, a blogger. I know you blog free, quite frequently, at, at least day, once a day. Yeah, every day, every day, pretty much. It's, so. Nearly. And you do that pretty, you know, you do that early in the morning and stuff like that. Early so in the mornings, yeah. Yeah, so I know that's a that is a big part of your life, and that's so you, obviously with retirement, did you did you miss the sort of interaction with your colleagues and with students and that sort of thing? Like since you've so you retired in twenty fifteen, it's obviously very early twenty eighteen at the moment, yeah. but so it's two two years or so. Yeah. Oh, I, absolutely, absolutely. It hadn't been my intention to retire at that age. I mean, if you'd asked me a year or so before. If none of these things had happened, and also I developed some health problems as well, which helped make the decision to retire, um, I had been thinking, well, professors often work until 70, mm-hmm. you know, often sleep in the library in the afternoon, but yeah. uh, 
so that'd be my intention. But um, so I, 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 I did miss that, but I, I don't miss it entirely because I, because I'm still in touch. Yeah, I'm still able to come in. I was in today this morning and able to speak to people, and then through, and obviously through social media, I'm still in touch. Mm-hmm. But and the, the blog, the, the the delight of the blog is that um, much as I, I took pleasure in researching and getting things published in journals, I had to sometimes go through hurdles over. Through hurdles, yes, over over hurdles, um, over hurdles to get my work approved because the the referees at the journals would be quite nitpicky, sure. and it was often quite demoralising. And even when I started to write for pro-independence uh, websites, which weren't my own, mm-hmm. I would still find people making suggestions for changes. Yeah, and I thought at this age, I have been edited. I've been edited for thirty years. I will not be edited again. I'm a free man, you know, for the last period of my academic life, and so I, I set up a blog. And uh, I've been doing that blog for two, three years now, and uh, and I write what I want to write. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I mean, I edit myself, yeah, and I don't write things that are stupid. I hope, but um, but it's a great joy not to be edited, not yeah. to have criticism. And I, the readers criticise, of course. And you, so you obviously interact with your readers and I things. I do, yeah. I make a point of replying to all comments. I know there are some some blogs, perhaps because they get more readers and more comments than I do. Uh, you don't actually. The blogger writes the blog, and then you never see the blogger again. Just comments from people below. Sure. But I tend to I tend to at least thank people for their comments. I mean, my my blog my blog on on a, on a poor day I'll get maybe about a thousand, which is you know is, is pretty small compared to a lot of other blogs. And the most I've had is nine thousand seven hundred. I remember that day, and it was it was an article I'd actually written about uh, Donald, Donald Trump. Okay. <laughs> Strangely enough, it wasn't about Scottish independence. Right. In which, uh, in which I suggested that Donald Trump was uh, was an awful man and uh, was a disaster for the American state, but uh, that equally, Hil- uh, Hillary would have been a disaster too because she would have, she was, she is a, a hawk politically, and she would have had American troops on the ground in Syria before you knew it. So, I wrote an article about that and it seemed to capture interest. Um, I wasn't siding with either Trump or it was an yeah. impossible decision for the American people to choose mm-hmm. between two horrible candidates. Really. And you've, I know you've had, you obviously mentioned Noam Chomsky before. Yes. You have had a, a little bit of feedback from him, is that right? I did. He'd, I, yeah, I should have kept the emails. And I, I, did, I had them pinned on my wall for a while. Noam Chomsky is, to my mind, the, the greatest intellectual of the second half of the 20th century and, and the early 20th century. He's still alive. He's, he's a a linguist by by origin, and and much of his early work was done on, on linguistics, but he's also a, a writer about propaganda, mm-hmm. and my my view of the media um, is entirely a Chomskyist or Chomskyite. I don't know which uh, view of things, and it's that's and that's one that journalists find hard to take, because Chomsky takes no prisoners mm-hmm. whatsoever. Chomsky says that the media are corporate and therefore serve the interests of the corporations. There are one or two wee exceptions, obviously, to that. And there are some good journalists working for the corporate media. Mm-hmm. The great the great uh, Ian Bell, who worked for the Herald until recently, who's a man I much admired, seemed to be able to write free of the constraints of the corporations. But I think he was, he was, he was a token. He was allowed to do so. It allows the corporations to say, we're not controlling things, we've let Ian Bell say what he likes. And uh, Chomsky largely uh, condemns the mainstream media as 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 uh, serving the interests of a small powerful elite, mm-hmm. and and I agree with him. And he but he did sort of write to say he was. I'm right to say he, you were you said you'd be his representative in Scotland. Is that right? <laughs> I did. It was it was quite funny actually because he um I I I I, I, I mean I took the initiative I took the initiative I sent him an email 
and he gets lots of emails, you can imagine. And uh, and he replied, and he, and he said he was really interested to see and to hear about what had happened to me. And he said at first he'd been unsure about it because he doesn't like nationalism, mm-hmm. and understandably. And I don't like, like nationalism either. I don't. It's unfortunate to my mind that the modern Scottish National Party is called that. Mm-hmm. I think it should be the Scottish Independence Party or something else, because nationalism is easily confused with Nazism and so on. And although Scottish nationalism is of a civic nature, you know, where everyone who lives here is allowed to vote, that includes people of any birth, birthplace are allowed to vote here, Scottish nationalism is not like, say, Serbian or Croatian nationalism. It's not ethnic. Um, so Chom- Chomsky and I had a two or three emails exchange. And on one, as I get my trumpet out, he said, he said I'd helped him understand the Scottish context. And he was now in favour of Scottish independence because he favours, as I do, the breakup of an imperial state. I see this as just as another step in the process from the, the independence of Australia and Canada and you know parts of Africa and so on. I see the British state as having been a cancerous presence in history. I see no glory in it whatsoever. And the role of Scots in it is really sad to my mind, cannon fodder. Um, and I, I see the departure of Scotland from the UK as just one of the latter stages of the, of the dismantling of an imperial state that was temporary. Mm. Didn't exist before about you know, 1700, 1600. Nothing lasts forever. Rome's not here anymore as an empire. So. Will we still be able to be in the Commonwealth Games? <laughs> um, that's an interesting thing. I, I, I'm not. I'm actually not very interested in the Olympics. Or they, I, I see them as school sports. Right. And I always. I, and not being very athletic at school, I, I, I didn't like school sports. No, fair enough. Jamie knows I'm. I'm a one sport man. It's the. There was only one game, the beautiful game, and that's the one that Johan Cruyff played. Right. Yes. And the, to to fit to finish in football, it's a World Cup year. Have you got a predict? Scotland aren't there again, unfortunately. Well, so obviously, we can't win it this time. We can't we? win it this time. No, got pr- I think we may have struggled had we got there. Yeah. <laughs> Because, um, as Kevin Bridges says, we, we don't want to be in your World Cup. We're a tennis nation now, anyway. <laughs> That's right. Well, we, 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 that may be a thing of the past, of course, if, if poor Andy's been injured beyond repair. Yeah, well. It, it looked quite worrying to me, but he, he says he'll be back. He says Let's he'll be hope back. so. Oh, yes, he is. A real, a real hero. Deeply ironic that we should be good at tennis, or that we should have one person good at tennis, yeah. even, with the amount of rainfall we get. Yeah. Um, well, he had predictions for, for Russia? Mm. I don't know. I think the Russians will do, will do better than they would have done elsewhere. Yeah. I think they might well sneak a place in the last four. Um, who will win it? Who will win it? I, I, I think Spain will disappoint again. You think so? I think so? France, maybe. They had a great qualifying yeah, campaign, they didn't did, they, Spain? I, France, I choose France. France. France or Germany. Okay. That's right, it's very easy, isn't it? France yeah. or Germany. No, you, you know you're not going to be far off. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. John Robertson, thank you very much indeed for your time. All my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again to John Robertson for taking the time to tell me how he ended up here. You can find his work at Talking Up Scotland on Scoop It. And that's all for today for this edition. Thanks very much indeed for downloading or streaming. If you've got any comments or thoughts, I'll be happy to hear from you on Twitter. I'm at Jamie here. Otherwise, I'll be back shortly with the next edition. <laughs>